News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, can giant nutcrackers save a city? Like, what an odd question that is, right? But in a way, that is what has happened in Steubenville, Ohio, after they built a nutcracker village. I have so many questions about this. So Mark Nelson is the owner of Nelson Fine Arts and Crafts in Steubenville and is with us to talk about it. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you this morning? I'm so good. Thank you for being here. Tell me, what what kind of town is Steubenville? Tell me about it. Uh, Steubenville is a small town. We're situated pretty close to actually Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're in Ohio, um, right on the edge of Ohio on the Ohio River. It's a small um, small town, 15, 18,000 people, and was formerly a, a large part of the uh, industry here was the steel mills and, uh, um, you know, the steel industry making of steel. And we lost all of that a few years ago. And then what happened when you lost all that? Uh, so when when the steel mills closed down, a lot of the uh, obviously a lot of the jobs left, a lot of the people left, a lot of the hope left, and um, being a small community, you know, with not a lot of resources, we we were slow to reinvent ourselves. Uh, we're still reinventing ourselves, and that's part of what this project was about. Uh, basically, my family, um, you know, after spending a couple of years trying to figure out how to either attract, you know, a larger industry or, or a Daddy Warbucks to come and help out. We basically kind of rolled up our sleeves and used our talent, the talents we had within our family in our small business to uh, start giving back to the community in the form of making life-size nutcrackers. And it kind of took off. <laughs> life-size nutcrackers. That seems like such um, a random thing to think of. <laughs> but you must love nutcrackers then. Well, we actually were in a meeting. We were in a meeting about revitalization, and our mayor suggested taking and, and trying to attract people to put little nutcracker collections in the empty storefronts in the historic area of our downtown. And immediately, I, you know, we do woodworking every day, and we're, we're you know, family of woodworkers. So I immediately wondered if we couldn't supersize it and uh, make them larger, and that would actually be a, a you know, like a, a bigger attraction um, than just having little collections. And yeah, that's basically how it happened. Was uh, I went home that afternoon, and uh, my oldest daughter. We have ten kids. My oldest daughter Madeline runs our graphics department. I had her print off a, a picture of a six foot tall nutcracker, and we studied it over the weekend, and basically figured out how we could actually manufacture them. And so there, are how many of these in downtown Steubenville? Uh, we we now have about two hundred and ten in downtown. Uh, wow. Two hundred and ten. There, uh, we've been doing it for nine years, and you know, the first year we made 35, the next year we made 75, and then we've just kept we just kept going. <laughs> we just keep adding more every year, what and other it, attractions as well. Right, but what has it done for the town? Uh, well, what it's really done is uh, the first year we did it, we actually saw a lot of people. And it's crazy, but they they ended up with you could see hope in their eyes. Um, it was a sparkle of uh, pride, um, people being pr- proud of where they were from and, and, and welcoming their friends and family to come down and see, uh, even just the first year when we had 35, but it was enough that it it sparked hope, and then that actually prodded our family to go ahead and invest in some of the historic commercial space in downtown, and we then embarked on an adventure of uh, revitalizing these old buildings and opening businesses, in them. and then that's actually spurred on 
further development, we do a summer event called First Fridays. Every Friday, uh, we close two or three blocks of downtown and have a street party in the evenings, a family-friendly affair with live bands and um, microbreweries and wineries that come down. And just a community event every first Friday. It attracts between probably four to 6,000 people on Amazing. a Friday night. Amazing. Yeah, yeah okay. so one thing just kind of led to another. Is what it's, what it's done. So at Christmas time, at this time of year, then, how many people would you say come to Steubenville? Do they come from all over to see this? Yeah, we're seeing people come from all over. A lot of people come because they enjoy Christmas, and people come from all over who really enjoy nutcrackers. So, you know, the people collect nutcrackers, and they come to see our collection. They bring their collections um, with them and, and show them off. They, they, people love, love Christmas, and people love nutcrackers. So we've seen literally tourists from all over the world. The majority come from probably five hours away. And on any given weekend, I think we're seeing between ten and 15,000 people coming to town and enjoying um, Christmas here. So is Steubenville, Mark, now a different place, would you say, because of all these events? It is. You know, since we've started, um, we have a lot of people immigrating here, moving here, a lot of young families. Uh, there's a strong family-friendly environment here that is, is very welcoming, and we, we're seeing a lot of people moving here, especially after COVID. A lot of people wanted to get out of the bigger cities and, and move to the country. And having this, which again has spurred on other community events, uh, is is completely changed the town. We're not done yet, but really, what next? Yeah, we're hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> but next, uh, we're working actually to uh, revitalize more buildings. We're trying to do a cultural artisan center where we can uh, educate people and include uh, basically like blacksmithing or pottery as other events that. Um, or other, other classes that people could take, as well as uh, manufacturing of nutcrackers. We'd like to do a museum of the nutcrackers so people can enjoy them in the off-season. I don't know if the nutcrackers are like that. They go on holiday every year, and uh, we'd have to bring them back from their, their spa. <laughs> Where do you but, store uh, them is what I'm wondering. A two, 210 life-size nutcrackers, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that's becoming a problem. Yeah, it's becoming a problem. So we originally stored them in some of the empty spaces before we revitalized them, but then as we fixed up these older buildings and put stores in them, the nutcracker um, basically you have to kind of keep moving. We try not to store them in one place. The collection's, you know, very valuable to the community, and uh, we don't want to see them, you know, damaged at all in one one spot. So we try to spread them out a little bit during their during their summer holiday. And uh, yeah, so empty buildings basically, and there's becoming less of them, which is that's what the goal thing. is. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. So is there more demand? Would you say every year now are more businesses saying, "Hey, I would like one of these to put in front of my business"? Because obviously, there's a. I saw that there's a map, right? So people can go on the Nutcracker Trail to go and see all the different ones. I would imagine most businesses would say, "Hey, I want one of these in front of my business." Yeah, exactly. And we we continue to spread them out. We added another city block this year. To the collection where we've, we've moved them down towards other restaurants that are there just trying to encourage the foot traffic uh, it's completely free and self-guided but along the way there's obviously stores that are open restaurants a lot of hot chocolate and coffee this time of year sounds yummy uh, so we do get requests we're trying to we're trying to meter how we grow it um, and trying to act add we're discovering we have to add other amenities like bathrooms yes <laughs> for instance. Um, and because it's Basically, you know, we, we volunteer to grassroots effort put on by our family. We started a nonprofit that, you know, we can get donations and sponsorships, which helps offset some of those costs. But we're still trying to figure out the, the math doesn't work real well quite yet. Right. But, uh, How long does it um, take to make one of these? Uh, about 40 hours, I think we figured, to make each one. Uh, 
by the time we go through the design process and then the carving, and then my wife and uh, daughters do all the sewing and decorating of the nutcrackers. Uh, yeah, about 40 hours. Wow, it is amazing. Well, thank you so much for telling us about that today. Good luck in Steubenville. Yeah, thank you. We welcome everybody to come visit us, and Merry Christmas to, to everybody. Oh, and Merry Christmas to you, too. That's Mark Nelson, owner of Nelson Fine Arts, Art, Fine Art and Gifts in Steubenville, Ohio. I love stories like this where they thought differently. They thought a little bit outside the box, seemed kind of weird at the time. Why don't we build some uh, life-size nutcrackers, put them around the town and see what happens? And it has completely revitalized the town. Uh, thousands and thousands of people show up every year at this time of year to see them. You should see it. Uh, just Google them. You'll see them. And they look amazing. And of course you would want to go and see things like that, right? Love it. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to have a little chat with our Vaughn Palmer on this Friday before Christmas. Good morning, Vaughn. Hey, good morning, Simi, and wonderful to hear my favorite Christmas song again and in the year that Shane McGowan died. Yeah. Uh, quite especially touching. Uh, if you haven't seen it, folks, uh, go on to YouTube. Uh, you can see McGowan's funeral. It was something. And they did the song live. And people danced. <laughs> it was re- that was really some kind of funeral. I haven't seen anything quite like yeah. that before. Uh, McGowan would have been laughing. Uh, it's amazing that he made it to age sixty nine. You know, uh, given the way he lived. But what a tremendous songwriter he was. Uh, there are a lot of great songs out there, but uh, that to me is the best Christmas song ever. I know. That's why we played it. We know it's your favorite. So that's our little gift to you today. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, We're going to talk about end of the year. You know, politicians, they always sit down and they have these end of the year conversations. I think people are hearing a lot of those right now. What's on the mind of Premier David Eby? Uh, He admits he's got a problem. I mean, give him credit for admitting it. Uh, The recent stories in all media and my colleague Katie DeRosa's stuff in uh, Vancouver Sun, but there's been other stories as well on Global and elsewhere. There is a serious problem in British Columbia with uh, cancer care. Uh, We used to lead the country in our metrics on that, as they say, and we've now got a huge problem uh, with people getting treatment. Uh, Some just heartbreaking stories recently of people waiting and waiting and waiting in pain. Uh, In a couple of cases, people who took medically assisted death because they couldn't handle it any longer. Uh, And others who have paid for chemo in the United States and for other cancer treatment in the United States raised the money and just gone and paid for it because they got tired of waiting. So uh, Katie did the year-end interview for The Sun, uh, Post Media, and E.B. didn't argue with the stories. You know, he, he did not. I'll give him credit for this. He didn't come back with statistics the way Adrian Dix does. The premier said, yes, there's a problem. He admitted it. And he says the government has to tackle the key measurement, which is our people getting the treatment within the recommended optimum time. And for radiation therapy in British Columbia, it's that You get it within four weeks of diagnosis. Not sure what it is for chemo, but that's for radiation therapy. And you want a statistic, one quarter of British Columbians diagnosed with cancer are not getting radiation therapy. You know, that is unacceptable to me. That's a daily torture that you are putting people through. Yeah. And I mean, it's especially true because, as I say, we used to lead the country. 
uh, on cancer care. You know, when when started doing stories about wait lists on for healthcare in British Columbia way back last time the NDP were in government, uh, when uh, the BC Liberals had troubles on that issue, you usually would say somewhere in the story, but on cancer care we deal with it, right? The ERs are good. That's right. Cancer care, we act quickly, we head it off, we treat people, and uh, that's why we have the gold standard. Now, we've known the system has been in trouble for a while. It didn't just start under the new Democrats, but it's gotten worse. And I think, you know, when the premier says, we've got to look at this, we've got to deal with this, um, he's acknowledging at least that he has a big challenge heading into the new year. What's he going to do about it? Well, he points to the cancer care plan they announced earlier this year. So they put in $450 million into it. It's rightly been considered, criticized, Simi, as aspirational. It's here's what we're going to do. We're going to build new cancer centers. We're going to recruit doctors and radiologists and all that. It doesn't have timetables and specific metrics that you can say, okay, if you haven't made it by this date, you're not there yet. So the premier is asking for a lot of patience from people as well. He says uh, people have to realize their waiting lists are reality and they have to believe the government is on the right track. He's right about that. Mm-hmm. I think, Simi, some of the recent stories are making it harder for people to believe the government is on the right track. The stats are interesting. That's one of his problems. Yeah, and the stats are interesting too. You pointed out that 16%, there's been a 16% increase in the number of patients seeking treatment. That has a lot to do with our aging population too, and we're getting better at finding cancer. Like those are things that we could have seen coming. Yeah, it's true, Simeon. I mean, people have been talking about this in theoretical sense. Look, I remember a doctor telling me this. Yeah, you live long enough, you're going to get cancer. Is statistically, it's an awful thing to say, but it, like, yeah. you know, it, it, these are these are uh, this is in particular a disease where the stats go up as you get older, and that means, as you say, Simi, with uh, the aging population in British Columbia, uh, full of people like me, the demand for the services is going to increase. And Eby says, yeah, and that's one reason why the New Democrats did something that in the past would have been unthinkable for an NDP government, which is to start paying for hundreds of people to get radiation Has therapy to be done. in Bellingham. Yeah. We're going to see more of that. We're going to have to see more of that. You know, um, again, Eby said this, right? He said, look, um, being told there's a new cancer center going to open in your community in a few years isn't much comfort if you need the treatment within four weeks. Uh, so uh, at least yeah. it was there was a sense of realism in what he said in his year-end interview. And uh, he's got, well, next year he's got to assure people that, as he says, the government is on the right track. Right. And... I think that is going to take some persuasion. And even though and I've had notes from people on this saying, well, you know, anecdotes, anecdotes, right? You, yeah. you can't make public, public policy based on anecdotes. Well, it doesn't take very many stories like some of the ones we've had recently of that woman in Victoria Awful, yeah. who took medically assisted death. Uh, and her last act was to fill six boxes full of 
birthday cards for her six grandchildren to be read each year on their birthdays till they turn 18. I mean, it's hard to even talk about that and not get really choked is. up. So, you know, yeah, you can't make good public policy on anecdotes, but I think the anecdotes, the case histories, let's not call them anecdotes, the case histories are what's killing the government on this issue. Very true. shouldn't use the word killing given the circumstances. We heard about what the premier has had to say. What about the leader of the opposition, Kevin Falcon? Well, I'll give the Premier credit for at least acknowledging the problem with cancer care in British Columbia. Uh, Opposition leader, BC United leader Kevin Falcon, uh, I would say is in denial. Interview with Dirk Meisner, Canadian press, here in interview, he says the opinion polls are BS. His quote, BS. Well, opinion polls can be wrong and they can also change, but I think the thing to emphasize at the moment is that They all say pretty much the same thing here in British Columbia. Say the New Democrats, uh, people are unhappy with their record and some issues, but they're still going to re-elect the NDP if the election were held tomorrow. They say the BC Conservatives are in second place, and they say Kevin Falcon and BC United have failed to connect with the BC public. So Falcon says that's BS. I think he ought to look at... You know, we can point to some plausible reasons for that. He says that when people say, oh, we're going to vote conservative, um, they're really just thinking of Pierre Polyev. They aren't going, hey, we really like this guy, John Rustad. He says they wouldn't recognize John Rustad if they met him in the street. I'm not sure they'd recognize Kevin Falcon either, but let's have that. But look, uh, Falcon's got a big problem. Um, Rustad, uh, whatever one thinks of the B.C. conservatives, Yes, he's, uh, I think, benefiting from the Polyev wave, but he's also adopting a lot of Polyev's positions. When he goes to the voters in the fall of 2024, Rustad's going to be saying pretty much what Polyev's. I'm going to get rid of the carbon tax. He's picked up a lot of the same issues. So um, it isn't just voter confusion. People, yes, recognize conservatism as a brand. They recognize a brand that's been defined to some degree by Pierre Polyev. But um, when they go looking on the ballot, uh, when they start tuning into the campaign in the fall of next year, they're going to be hearing a lot of the same messages from Rustad. He's, he's capitalizing on this. So meanwhile, there's the BC United problem, Simi and... Um, Rust, uh, uh, Kevin Falcon says, when the election rolls around, people are going to see that BC United is the plausible alternative to the government, that they have the team and they're ready and they have the resources. Well, I think you can test that claim by the state of BC United right now. So Kevin Falcon, Simi, changed the name of the party back in April. And here we are, however, many months later. At the time, he acknowledged that it would be a rebranding exercise. You'd have to go out and tell people you've got a new party here. We're not BC Liberals anymore. We're BC United. Where do these things stand on that? You know, Simi, last month, late last month, BC United admitted that its rebranding fund is empty. Really? And they're trying to raise money to fill it. And I go, 
you change the name of your party without pick a number, hundreds of thousands of dollars without a plan in the bank yeah, to... for an advertising campaign. Yeah. Why would you do that if you weren't ready to immediately start telling people, hey, change their name. You know, hey, we're we were used to be the BC Liberals. Now we're BC United. I think, you know, that that problem can be laid at Kevin Falcon's feet. And I think I'm hearing from a number of BC United supporters privately, they aren't speaking publicly yet, are saying just that, that this party changed its name without the money for a rebranding campaign, and they're still waiting for the rebranding campaign. There have been bits and pieces and little ads and some stuff on social media, but nothing like uh, what you would expect from a... Yeah, I mean, businesses do this too, but they put a lot of money aside to, yeah. to rebrand too. Is it possible that they thought, Vaughn, that they really did think there was going to be an early election and that that would help them with this? It's a good guess. Um, you know, I, I don't entirely blame opposition politicians for not believing the NDP leader when he says, I'm not going to call a snap election because that's exactly what John Horgan did to them in 2020 and he ambushed them. So I, you can see, yes, that's not a bad theory that they might have hedged. I think the other thing that Falcon did not see coming was the rise of the BC Conservatives. Mm, he true. kicked John Rustad out of the caucus. And by the way, in the year-end interview, he says he has no regrets about doing that. Rustad was a disruptive force. Um, Kevin Falcon's rationale for changing the name of the party from BC Liberals to BC United was to end the confusion with voters who go looking, uh, look at the ballot and go, BC Liberal, what's that? So his argument was to end the confusion. Well, Simi, the confusion is worse than ever. I wonder how confused BC voters were when they managed to elect the Liberals in, in a bunch of elections and give them the most votes even in the two elections that the Liberals lost. So, you know, I, I don't you know, know. in yeah. 96 and, and 2017. So I, you know, I think he's got a lot to answer for. If he's right, he's going to take one hell of a victory lap next, <laughs> next October. And we'll if be- he's wrong, it's going to be easy to point your finger at where the blame goes. And either way, we'll be talking about it. Um, so, Vaughn, listen, have a great weekend. Uh, enjoy yourself. Happy Christmas. You too, and I'm going to go put the pokes on. You do that. Thank you for that. That's that's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for us to find out what's been going on in the United States this past week. It's our weekly check-in with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. You've had another incredibly busy week. So we're going to start out by getting the latest on Donald Trump versus the Supreme Court. Where is this case at? So, so it, it's it's heading to the Supreme Court. So we think, at least when it comes to the matter involving uh, the Colorado Supreme Court, saying that he can't appear on the ballot, we're waiting to see if and when the Trump team appeals this before the January fourth deadline. But in the last twenty four hours, we've heard that the Colorado GOP, if Trump opts to bring it to the Supreme Court and say they side against him. They simply won't hold a primary in Colorado. They'll hold a caucus instead because that's not state run. Those are kind of county level run. So they'd still be able to get Trump on the ballot. So whether or not this gets to the Supreme Court, Trump's team is already trying to spin the wheels here to ensure that 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 
people have the right to vote for him. Interesting. Okay, and just I know also in the last 24 hours, what is the deal with this whole Michigan story? Uh, which Michigan story would that be? So we're talking about Donald Trump here again on tape, uh-huh. on tape talking about, you know, pressuring electors and all of that kind of stuff. Yes. So it's the second time that we've seen, uh, you know, an allegation now, or at least we, we, we know the allegation in Georgia because we heard him on the phone. We don't have a, a copy of this phone call yet from uh, Michigan, but we understand that Donald Trump spoke to two electors, two GOP electors in Michigan uh, while he was still in office, pressuring them to not uh, certify Michigan's uh, electoral count before it went to Congress. Obviously, that uh, you know could assist Special Counsel Jack Smith in his efforts to bring this case forward that Donald Trump was involved in trying to subvert the 2020 election here. Uh, no comment yet from, uh, from, from the Trump team, but it's worth pointing out that Ronna McDaniel, who is the head of the RNC, the Republican National Committee, uh, was also involved uh, in this phone call here. So, you know, if Jack Smith can get his hands on this, and usually the DOJ can can access whatever they want. Um, this could be this could be big for his case and potentially damaging, further damaging to Trump. Also, that is the state of U.S. politics today, right? When you have to say, well, which exactly, which Donald Trump Michigan story are we talking about? <laughs> well, here? even when we said, even when you said uh, Trump in the Supreme Court, I mean, in the last twenty four hours, so many. I, I mean, look, in the last twenty four hours again, Trump is threatening to go to the Supreme Court over a January oh. case that he's facing against E. Jean Carroll in a defamation suit, which is going to determine how much he owes her. He's going to try to go to the courts to say, look, I was immune from this because it happened while I was in office, and that is what Jackson. Smith is also at the Supreme Court for to determine if wow. Trump is immune from things. So my bad. Until we my get, bad. There, there are so, so many Supreme Court cases. It's, it's honestly hard to keep track. Of I them. apologize. That was on me. <laughs> I need to be more specific then when I'm asking you the question. So my apologies on that one. I'll be as specific as possible. <laughs> Let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. Is he actually broke? I mean, uh, he says that he is to the point of where he has filed for bankruptcy protection, uh, claiming that he owes 100 to 500 million dollars in liabilities. Well, that's a lot. Uh, and only has one to $10 million in assets. And it's worth pointing out here that the creditors uh, going after Rudy Giuliani include two Georgia election workers who he made, um, you know, brutal comments about uh, and has continued to make them, even though he was found to, you know, have made those comments and owes $150 million. Some of the creditors also include the state of New York and the United States government. Um, so the question is, you know, where is this money going to come from, especially for the Georgia case, because there are laws in the U.S. that say, if you've done something, um, you know, wrong, if you've done something bad uh, and, and, and you've been found guilty of that and you need to pay out, bankruptcy doesn't cover that. So the question is, where is this $150 million right. going to come from? Okay, all good questions there. Now, can we talk about the situation at Harvard, too? Because I have actually started following this story. It is fascinating that after all the testimony and everything that happened, putting some of these Ivy League heads on the hot seat, the spotlight seems to have persisted on the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, because of plagiarism allegations. Yeah, I mean, and and this was originally kind of pushed back on to say that these are people going after uh, the Harvard president uh, because of comments made. But it now turns out that there may be some changes that are being made uh, to the dissertation that is in question here. And President Gay has actually said she's going to update it to correct instances of, quote unquote, inadequate citation. You know, whether or not that that gets past the plagiarism laws here uh, and and 
is enough to kind of, um, you know, cool down the simmer that that's kind of been boiling underneath the president is a question. Um, you know, the second question is, you know, how did this dissertation come about? and sit around since 1997 when laws exist for plagiarism and is it overblown or is it not overblown given the situation that Harvard and the Harvard president are sitting in right now? You know, is it, is it a distraction or is it another way to go after the president? That's the question being asked. I don't know. It feels like that story is morphing, right? Changing all the time. Uh, I want to ask you about Rite Aid too. So we know that facial recognition is more and more of a big deal out there, but I'm not sure, Reggie, that people expect that their drugstore is using facial recognition on them. Yeah, I mean, look, and and the, the facial recognition, the AI thing is under incredible scrutiny around the world, particularly in the United States. The FTC got involved with this one regarding Rite Aid, uh, who had facial recognition in some of its stores, not all of its stores around the United States. It stopped using it a couple of years ago, but over a, a period that lasted more than a decade, uh, the pictures that would come in were grainy. They weren't really good, but alerts would be given to staff to follow certain people that walked into the store, even if that person wasn't the actual person in the picture. Uh, and oftentimes they would be asked to leave. They'd have the police called on them. They would be you know, called out in front of family as having committed earlier crimes that they didn't commit. The FTC stepped in and said, whoa, 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 this is not good. Uh, Rite Aid, you can't use facial recognition or AI for the next five years. Um, and, and you know, the, the question here is, um, how reliable can this be? Yes, it was older technology from from 2010. But it 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 is it's a concern for not only the FTC, but the general public here to know who's looking at them well, yeah. and who's mistaking them for someone else. No kidding who is mistaking them for someone else. And speaking of that, then that leads into the final story we're going to talk about, because this one deserves some recognition. A man who served 48 years in jail and now turns out has been completely exonerated. Yeah, there was there was evidence that uh, that was not presented. It was a Brady violation. Uh, you know, he he the, the, the this was this, the the beginnings of him being able to get out of prison. Uh, go back to the the summertime uh, of of this year. He is now out uh, on a murder from 1974 that he did not commit. That he in fact was not even in the state when that murder was oh uh, was committed. And, t- and testimony had come out to say that yes, we saw him in another state. Nonetheless, uh, you know, a jury found him guilty for. 48 years in prison. It's the longest, um, you know, bogus incarceration in the United States in history. Um, he's now going to try to seek some kind of compensation. Oklahoma caps that at $175,000. The man is 70 years old. He gained no skills to be able to, um, you know, make a living for himself once he was freed. Uh, there's a GoFundMe that's been set up for him now to try and, and give him something because while he was in jail, he was also diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So, I mean, yes, it's a oh good thing goodness. he's out now, but this is a difficult life that he now faces um, on the other side. Oh, yes, it is. I know. What a story. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. And just on that note about Glenn Simmons, I did look it up. I thought, I hope people are responding to this, his GoFundMe. Uh, so far, they've raised almost uh, $250,000 US. Half a million dollars is his goal. He spent 48 years in jail and did not commit the crime. And the max that he can get from the government because of state law is $175,000. So it's nice to see that people are kind of stepping up for that one too. And we hope he comes through his treatment well. This is Mornings with Simi. 
This is the season for giving, right? We always hear that and we're busy, right? Making sure we get that grocery list taken care of. We're making a dinner for families, for friends, for gatherings. And if you're lucky enough to be doing all that, then I, I hope you're you're well on your way to getting yourself organized and getting it all done and everything goes wonderfully. But not everybody has the option for doing that. Some people face a lot of loneliness at this time of year uh, and challenges, especially financial challenges. So helping others is also what makes this season so great. And there are still ways to do that. We wanted to highlight some of them this morning. Joining us now is Lisa Waring, the Executive Director of the Surrey Christmas Bureau. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I should ask, how are you doing? How are things going at the Surrey Christmas Bureau? It has been the busiest season ever for us at the Surrey Christmas Bureau. We've had a a tremendous number of requests for help, a new record, and we are working every single day to make some Christmas magic happen for families here in Surrey. So when we talk about demand, how much would you say it has gone up this year versus years past? Well, we usually uh, serve about 2,000 families every year, but this year it is just risen dramatically. We had over 2,300 requests for our help this year, and we are working as hard as we can to make sure we can we can fulfill all of that. Uh, we've also seen a lot of very uh, worried families. The inflation in groceries in particular is really impacting people. They're worried about how they're going to get those all-important Christmas meals on the table. Uh, our board of directors actually increased the amount of grocery uh, gift card that we provide to each family to kind of help them offset that a little bit. But that's really impacted our budget in a dramatic fashion. Uh, we're, we're providing over $260,000 in grocery support this year. Oh, wow. Okay, so is the community stepping up? Like, how can we help you right now? Well, we could sure use some help with, uh, with that uh, grocery uh, support budget as well that people can donate right on our website which is christmasbureau.com it's kind of a great way to virtually adopt a family if you will Uh, you can choose to to provide what would be a grocery hamper gift card for a family of two of three whatever your budget can spare we would appreciate all that kind of help and how was the toy collection this year the, yeah, the toy collection is, has come in. Uh, it's been, it was a little bit slow. We have to start so early because we serve so many families that a lot of folks aren't thinking about toy drives in the beginning of November. We've been uh, handing out toys since mid-November, so it's, uh, it's, been, it's been steady. Uh, but we're, we've, we've been managing to get some really great gifts in. We've had a lot of incredible families that we've met this year, uh, both that have come in to donate gifts and also to receive gifts. Can people still do that? Can people yes, still donate can. for that? Absolutely. We're still serving families until the end of tomorrow. Wow. Okay, so where do we have to go to, to do that then? Well, our toy, toy depot is located in the former Canadian Tire in central Surrey. Uh, the address is 13665-102 Avenue. Okay, so what's it been like, uh, Lisa, for you? This must be very challenging for you, too, because seeing the need out there and not being able to necessarily help everyone you want to help, how, that must that, that's tough. It is tough. We do our, our very best, and we also work with, um, with a lot of other agencies that also provide support. So we all kind of work together in, in, the, in the Christmas agency community. Uh, we, you know, we see... 
requests for, I've actually seen requests for help from other municipalities. I took a call from a lady from Washington State who somehow found us. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of remarkable. Um, but, you know, we, she found us somehow on, on the Internet and, and wondered if there was something in her location and didn't know how to find it. And it, it just, it kind of really spoke to me about how far-reaching the need is everywhere. And, of course, we were able to direct the, that particular lady to an agency in her state and town. And we, we do that here um, in the Lower Mainland all the time. But it's, uh, it, it, I think that the level of need is, is extremely high, and it really is the inflationary pressures that we are seeing that are having a, such an impact on families right now. Well, we wanted people to know that it is not too late, even on this Friday before Christmas, to do something. So what message do you want to put out there? Anything you can spare would be very gratefully received. Uh, we would uh, love to receive support. If you do have some of those toys that you've been meaning to drop off to our toy depot, please don't hesitate. Come on by. We're open from 9 to 5 today and 9 to 3 tomorrow, and we'd love to see you. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. We'll do what we can. Uh, thank you so much, Simi. We so appreciate your support. Anytime. That is Lisa Waring. Lisa is the executive director of the Surrey Christmas Bureau. They put out the urgent call for donations. They've, they've had so many families. They're providing more than $260,000 in grocery store vouchers to families this year. Their previous record was 195000 So you can see how much the need has grown. Now, they've got the Toy Depot, so you can drop off toys if you would rather do that. They desperately need that. You can still financially, like virtually, adopt a family, too, for a family of four, it's $180. That's that's going to take care of a family of four. You could do a family of two for $140. All of that information is available online. Go to christmasbureau.com. It's not too late to do something special this time of year. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, it's going to be busy out there today. We know with traffic, as we just heard, it's going to pick up. A lot of people leaving work early. Why? Because they got somewhere to go. Probably got some kind of party to go to this evening. It's going to be a lot of people on the road for that. You know what else is going to happen tomorrow morning? A lot of people hurting. For sure, people with headaches, having a little bit of a hangover, maybe reaching for that Tylenol, reaching for that Advil to make it all better. The dreaded holiday hangover is definitely a thing. But you know what? There are apparently some secret recipes that will maybe help you recover a little bit faster, a little bit better. So our contributor, Scott Shantz, had a chance to speak with Dr. Julia Chester, who is the professor of neuroscience at Purdue University. She actually specializes in how alcohol impacts the brain. I wanted to find out how and if you can indulge in all of that holiday spirit and walk away, well, scot-free. So glad to be talking this morning, and uh, it's quite timely, Dr. Chester, because I am suffering a hangover right now. Uh-oh. What did I do wrong? <laughs> well, uh, you not necessarily did anything wrong. Um, there's a lot of factors that contribute to hangovers. One of them is um, the amount of consumption. So that's the number one reason why people have hangovers is they exceed the metabolic rate of their liver and its ability to metabolize alcohol. So the metabolic rate is approximately one drink per hour, and it's really easy to exceed that. 
Yeah, I think it for sure. Like I, a one drink an hour feels right, uh, but I definitely, you know, like I, I agree with you. It's really easy to exceed that. But I also feel like there are times where I'll have about one drink an hour and have like maybe three beers over three hours, and I still have a, a headache the next morning. Yeah. Does that still yeah. qualify? Like, explain how that works. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, absolutely. So sometimes no matter how much you try and mitigate the effects of your drinking and drink slowly, you can still have a hangover, and that's because alcohol causes all kinds of disruptions to the body's physiological processes and um, has effects on the brain as well. So one of those things is that it causes a... um, release of different hormones in, in the body that affect uh, the brain and, and body's uh, physiological processes that relate to hydration status. Um, a lot of times a hangover might be related to the dehydrating effects of alcohol. Um, it could also be that an individual is sensitive to some of the um, effects of alcohol that, that really result in, in almost like an allergic reaction, uh, which causes uh, headaches. And in some individuals, they're particularly sensitive to the, the effects of um, the alcohol in terms of it creating a headache. Yeah. And I also feel like it kind of depends on what I've been drinking, you know, like sometimes if I drink draft beer, for whatever reason, draft beer just absolutely does a number on me. Whereas, I don't know, drinking like a gin and tonic doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the effects of alcohol are, are due to some of the other ingredients in the, in the alcohol that we're drinking. So, for example, wine has sulfites in it, and um, I'm particularly sensitive to that, for example, and I will get a headache when I drink certain types of wine, and there's different types of wine that have different levels of sulfites in it. So, depending on your individual sensitivity, you know, it could be the same thing with the draft beer, that it's, um, that it has some other types of, you know, ingredients or, or you know, chemicals, essentially, that in the process of making it that you're sensitive to. Let's talk about prevention, because there are ways that you can sort of, uh, if you anticipate, like, hey, it's holiday party season, got a big night coming up this weekend. Um, what can I do ahead of time, like an ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure? What can I do ahead of time to mitigate the hangover that could potentially be coming tomorrow morning? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of things, um, or at least a few things that you can do ahead of time. So the first thing is is to have a plan for drinking. Oftentimes what happens is we go into a social situation, we're very excited to be there, we know that alcohol will be there, and we're looking forward to that. Um, But as soon as we start drinking, the alcohol actually releases our inhibitions, and we're having a good time, and that can... um, Suddenly you lose focus on, you know, how much alcohol am I drinking, and it, overconsumption is very easy. So if you have a plan in advance and, and, you, and you know how much you want to drink um, and what you, don't, you know, you, there is a certain amount that you should stick to, um, definitely the no more than one drink per hour and the general guidelines for healthier drinking to keep us um, from having those adverse effects is, you know, no more than than one or two drinks 
for a female and two or three for a male. And that's in one, one evening separating each drink by an hour and drinking water in between. That would, would definitely help um, mitigate a potential hangover. The other thing that helps a lot is to have a full stomach before you start drinking. Okay, so let's say that we, uh, yeah, get our inhibitions lowered and we don't plan ahead and go out and have a, a big night and the next morning we wake up hungover. Is it, is it too late to do anything about that or what can we do? Like, the, we didn't do the prevention thing, so now we got to live with it. How can we make the effects of the hangover, you know, more bearable or, you know, lessened or quicker? Um, how, what do we do after the fact? Yeah, there's really no uh, magic uh, formula for making it go away quicker. There are a few things you can do to make it more bearable. Definitely consume a lot of water. Oftentimes, um, having small bits of, of food that are very uh, plain, you know, maybe bread or toast, might help alleviate some of those. Uh, effects of the hangover, but the number one way to, you know, get through it is is to just have some time pass. Dr. Julia Chester, she's a professor of neuroscience at Purdue University, and she studies alcohol's effects on the brain. Thank you so much for some time this morning and for uh, for sharing, you know, some helpful hints with us. And uh, have a happy and hangover-free holidays. <laughs> That's our Scott. That is our Scott Chance. Hangover free holidays. I highly doubt that for people out there. Um, also, I've always been fascinated by human psychology in that you know that's going to happen, right? If you drink to excess, you are going to get a hangover, and yet people still do it. So clearly you have you made that decision already in your head that you know you're probably going to suffer for this but people are going to do it anyway. And everybody has their own little methods for coping with it. Uh, I'd love to hear yours too. My mother used to drink, uh, what was that concoction that she did? It was like buttermilk and lemon juice and salt and pepper, like really heavy on the pepper. That was her like recovery from a hangover, kind of like a savory lussy. You know what I mean? Uh, I know, crazy. Everybody has their own. What's yours? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the lights of hope at St. Paul's Hospital, right? I mean, it's an amazing light display. It has been delighting people for 26 years, and it's been helping to raise lots of money, too. I mean, can you even imagine what it takes to unravel, untangle, and organize the more than 100,000 lights that it takes to make that happen? You know who can imagine it? Steve Kelly. Steve is an electrician associated with the IBW 213 union uh, and has been involved in the Lights of Hope campaign, well, for a long time. We're going to hear all about it from Stephen Kelly, who joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, how long have you been doing this? 25 years now. How did you get started? Um, I was working for one of our union contractors, and I was approached by my foreman and asked if I'd like to come and help uh, hang some Christmas lights. And I said, sure. And uh, they told me to meet at St. Paul's Hospital that Saturday morning. 
So they didn't tell you like how many Christmas lights, Steve. They were just like, come help us hang some Christmas lights. Pretty much. Wow. Uh, okay. What does it involve? Can you give me an idea of the kind of work that goes into this? It's months and months in the planning. Um, we have a, a, a group of people that meet and start organi- organizing this in September. And we have volunteers uh, from BCIT, uh, pre-app, and um, other volunteers start testing and untangling the lights as early as late September, right through until we start hanging them late October. That's a huge time commitment, Steve. Did you ever think it was going to be like this? Never. (laughs) I thought it was a a one-time thing, and I've always been very eager to go back. Um, I mean, the, the people at uh, St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and the people at St. Paul's are just absolutely amazing people. They're always warm and and very inviting. But why do you do it? What do you get out of doing this for 25 years volunteering so much of your time? It's very easy to give back when it's such an important thing um, to be able to raise money for um, St. Paul's and for our community. Um, personally, I had a a very good friend of mine I met back in grade eight. Um, he ended up being homeless and on the streets using drugs and um, contracted HIV. And um, in his last days, St. Paul's staff and the people at St. Paul's were instrumental in making him very comfortable and feeling very welcomed. I mean, the the people there have an innate way of looking past the stigma of addiction and homelessness and seeing the people for who they are. And they just went a long ways being good people. Is this your way of saying thank you to them? Oh, definitely. Um, And I've met hordes of other people volunteering there that are in the same boat, more or less. They've had friends, family, loved ones treated and dealt with St. Paul's, and they're just eager to to want to give back. Do you ever go, Stephen, and once the lights are all up and just see the faces of the people looking at the lights and hear the comments from people? I have done. And it, it's it, it's really a, a fun way for us to start our, our Christmas season. Um, in years past, I've gone and hung the lights in October, and then we've been invited back to come and watch the, uh, the lighting ceremony. And that's always a, a very spectacular thing. When you say we, you mean your family, because now you've gotten your family involved too, haven't you? Yes, I have. Um, my son, Jason, and my daughter, Heather, um, they're seven years apart, but they both 
started coming with me when they were about 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. Uh, my son, Jason, was the first child volunteer at uh, Lights of Hope, and Heather followed in his footsteps. And for me, it's, it's been a really neat way to share with my family just what I do on a day-to-day basis, uh, the types of work that I do, working with the, the lifts and, and working on these different types of buildings. So you must be a Christmas light expert. Like, your is your house as amazing as this display? What do you do at your house? I do a fair bit at my house. Um, I wouldn't say it's amazing, but I definitely like to see the Christmas lights. Um, myself and my family enjoy going to the different light displays throughout the city and and taking in the, the lights. Well, I'm going to consider you an expert, Steve. So I have a couple questions here for you. One. Is it multicolor or multicolored lights better or single lights, single color? That's a, that's a personal preference. <laughs> um, I quite like all the lights. Um, my wife and I are, are very partial to the blue ones, um, and I quite enjoy the the multicolor. Yeah, I'm a multicolored light person through and through. So what is it about volunteering? 25 years you have dedicated and a lot of time to this you're you're like a super volunteer does that does that make you feel good or do you think no i just enjoy doing this i just enjoy doing it um and like like i've said it's it's an easy way for me to want to give back um the people at saint paul's going back there every year i get to see it's like seeing friends and family that you haven't seen all year and it doesn't matter that you haven't seen them you just pick up where you last left off and you share stories and it's more like a social gathering for me than it is work or volunteer work. Well, you certainly have set the example for all of us. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us and listen, great work. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. That's Stephen Kelly, volunteer for St. Paul's Hospital Lights of Hope campaign. You know the campaign. You drive by St. Paul's Hospital. They do this extraordinary light display at this time of year. It's also a fundraiser for the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. But Steve, who we just talked to there, has been helping them put those lights up starting in September every year for 25 years. And the display has only been around for 26. So, you know, he has been an integral part of this. His kids are now involved as volunteers as well. That right there to me kind of embodies the spirit of the season there where he just enjoys it. And can you imagine just going and seeing the lights, knowing that, hey, I helped in that. I I helped do that. And knowing what an important fundraiser it is for the good work that they do at the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, too. That's the kind of thing we like to hear about at this time of year. And if you know of an extraordinary volunteer that you think deserves to be recognized over the holidays, please tell me so we can give them a shout out. Simi at cknw.com. We're here all next week, except for Monday. It's Christmas Day, right? We have some special holiday programming in store for you. But all next week, I am here. I would love to hear about extraordinary people who you think have gone above and beyond at this time of year. And we can give them a little bit of a shout out. So Simi at cknw.com.